Well, our reading today is from the third scene of Luke's gospel. Uh, There's something uh, rather cinematic about the way Luke is telling his story. Yes, he's a historian, but he's quite dramatic in his presentation. In the first two scenes, Luke has been setting up a contrast between the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And these are like two or three panels in, uh, in an altarpiece, right? A, a triptych. And what he does is he presents these two plot lines, these two stories. In the third scene, he brings them together as Mary goes to meet with her cousin Elizabeth. And this comparison between Jesus and John is brought out into the full light of day. And we need to remember as we read this text, it's not just a a comparison between Jesus and John. It is a comparison between the Old Testament and the New. Between the temple in Jerusalem and an unknown village in Galilee. Uh, Between a, a very important person, a noble, righteous priest in the midst of his service. And a servant woman who's totally unknown going about her daily chores. And perhaps most notably, as we'll see here today, it is about how Zechariah received in unbelief this message and was cursed. And how Mary received this word of the Lord with belief and faith and how she was blessed. I was tempted to call this sermon, What is Faith? Because what Luke is doing here is giving us a picture of faith right at the beginning of his gospel. He's showing us how we should respond to the word of the Lord as we receive it. And so uh, let's listen and learn and grow. Mark these words. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Join me in our prayer. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, that prayer is always true. 
that uh, God has revealed Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But quite literally, that's in our text today, right? Mary believed that God's word would be fulfilled, and it was. Um, sometimes I think it's, it's a little odd as we read Luke's uh, birth narratives when we come upon these songs. I don't know about you. I'm not, I'm not like a huge uh, musical theater kind of guy. I'm not like a, a Broadway musical person. But me and my family have had some like favorite shows that have become beloved. Um, I don't know why this seems to air around Christmas sometimes, but like The Sound of Music, right? And, and how does The Sound of Music open? It opens with that great song, The Hills Are Alive with The Sound of Music. We can all hear the strains of the music. We, we see, um, you know, Maria twirling in the Alpine Hills. Um, in one of my sermons previously, I talked about uh, the man of La Mancha to dream the impossible dream, right? These, these songs grip us. And so as a historian, as a gospel preacher, I think it's kind of interesting for us. Why does Luke pause the story? He's telling a story, a narrative, right? And he pauses that, and then there's a song. And it's kind of like in a Broadway musical where there's the dialogue, the people are talking back and forth, and then, you know, totally unlike real life, someone just bursts out and starts singing a song, right? We could think more classically like an opera. There could be dialogue between the characters. And then there's, there's an aria, which is like speaking to these broad universal themes. And in some ways, when, when the singer sings the aria, aria, I don't even know how to pronounce it, they face the audience, right? And they engage the audience in this song. Songs and poetry are a huge part of God's word. Almost the entirety of the prophets are written in poetic, poetic song. The Psalms. The Proverbs, even in the historical narratives, after uh, Israel is delivered through the Red Sea, we see the song of the sea, right? The song of Moses. And what is happening in these songs, and what Luke is concerned with, is that there is a pause in the narrative action. There is a pause in the story, and the audience, you and I, the listener, Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, are asked to stop and listen and to think about the significance of what you're hearing. To reflect upon, and in a sense, we're invited in to sing this song. On the way into church this morning, I was listening to Bach's Magnificat. For thousands of years, Christians have been listening to the words of the Magnificat. We're invited into Mary's song. We are a part of this drama. Mary is inviting us to sing with her. Luke is inviting us to share in the faithful response of Elizabeth and Mary. And so we want to reflect now on, on what is being presented for us in this third scene where these two storylines have been brought together. The two characters in the movie, you know, bump into each other in the coffee shop <laughs> and drama unfolds. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Mary and Elizabeth are the first two believers in Jesus. What do they do? They gather in worship and praise. They're gathered, better yet, to say they're gathered by the Holy Spirit to praise God for what he has done through his son. And they present for us a model of faith in stark alternative to Zechariah, who doubted and didn't believe. And so Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, is saying, listen up, people. You're hearing the word of the Lord. Come and believe. Respond in faith. And so I want to, in my outline, look first at Elizabeth's faith and then Mary's faith. 
And then uh, Mary's faith is a little bit more complicated, sort of work through the song a little bit. But let's start now by talking about Elizabeth's faith. And uh, she says here, in so many words, the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she says, this child within you is my Lord. Very profound confession of faith. We read earlier that John was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, this little infant in the prophecy to Zechariah, that he's going to go before the Lord, that he's going to be the one who announces the herald, the coming of the Messiah. And at the very first opportunity he has, before either John or Jesus is even born, the Baptist, as it were, blows his herald's trumpet from inside his mother's belly. Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, and the baby leaps in her womb. And this detail is reported in verse 44. It sort of envelops this encounter and and Elizabeth's blessing. And Elizabeth responds to the leap in her womb. So she hears the herald say, the Messiah is here. And she responds in faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills her. And she responds in faith. Blessed are you. Blessed is the fruit in your womb. The great miracle of the incarnation. Mary's immaculate conception. She had a child within her without a human father. It's not reported to us as a matter of history. Luke doesn't tell us the story. Mary went to bed one night. She felt something funny. She woke up the next day. He doesn't recount it for us. We learn about it after the fact. It's very dramatic. It happens off stage. And who's the first person to tell us that this miracle has occurred? The Baptist. He jumps. He knows. He recognizes. And Elizabeth is a faithful, righteous Israelite woman. She's unlike her husband. No surprise here, right? A little bit more righteous than her husband. And Elizabeth greets the coming of the Messiah with faith and with joy. Not only has Gabriel's announcement about Elizabeth. Remember, Gabriel told Mary. Mary says, how's this going to happen? He says, the one who does impossible things will do the impossible thing. It is an impossible thing, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what's more, your cousin Elizabeth is now six months with child. That old lady, you know, is having a baby too. And that's by the working of God. So Gabriel's announcement about Elizabeth, the the miracle to come, that was given as a confirmation to Mary, is now confirmed to Mary. So Mary's encouraged by seeing Elizabeth great with child at six months. But then that confirmation, the baby in the womb, the baby Baptist, confirms the fulfillment of the promise in Mary's womb. Maybe Mary didn't even know yet. We don't know, right? Why did Mary go to see Elizabeth? Luke doesn't really tell us. But we do know, again, that Gabriel had offered Elizabeth's pregnancy as a confirmation of his promise. Mary didn't ask for a confirmation. She just wanted to know how mechanically this was supposed to occur. But Calvin tells us in his commentary, and I think it's a a useful, he says that, that Mary in faith, seeking confirmation of the promise where it had been offered, and he sought, and she sought to celebrate with her cousin the mercy of God toward them both. Mary looks for the confirmation where God has promised it. She as it were, uses the means of grace, right? She's to believe this impossible thing. She's all by herself. She's about to be pregnant. She's not married. Her life's going to change. 
Not entirely in good ways. We see part of this in Matthew's gospel with Joseph, right? Well, should I divorce? Should I separate from this woman I'm betrothed to? So she goes to her cousin where she knows she can be comforted and where they can share and celebrate together the good news, the gospel that has been preached to her. So the Holy Spirit has come upon Mary powerfully. The Holy Spirit has worked upon Elizabeth powerfully. The Holy Spirit is working in the Baptist. And in all three of them, the Spirit is working faith in Christ. And a part of this working, a part of the Lord's direction, calls Mary to gather with Elizabeth that they might both be witnesses together of God's gracious gifts to them. Confirming in one another what the Lord is doing in them and among them. Not only for them having children, which Elizabeth had prayed for for many years, but for Israel, redeeming his people. So in a sense, John, Elizabeth, and Mary gathered together as the first first gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. The first uh, Christian church service. Now, as Reformed Christians, we confess in our Belgic Confession of Faith that the church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until its end. The church is not a New Testament phenomenon. It is the gathering of believers from the ends of the earth uh, to faith in God. Uh, The confession teaches us that Christ is an eternal king. He cannot be without believing subjects. But we also confess that with the coming of Christ, the promises of a savior, a seed who would crush the serpent's head, are fulfilled. The types and shadows become reality. And so what we see here is a gathering of a people worshiping Jesus in the flesh for the first time. Instead of believing in a coming Redeemer, in a promised future reality, John, Elizabeth, and Mary together confess faith in a Redeemer who has come. They worship a present Lord. And when Luke tells us that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, he is telling us that her words are inspired. Her words are prophecy. They are the word of the Lord. Just as much as Gabriel's words to Mary and Zechariah were the word of the Lord. They're given to her by the Spirit. And what does she say? Let's listen carefully. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed That there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary is blessed among all women. She's entirely unique because of the blessed fruit of her womb. As promised by the Holy Spirit, she is conceived without a human father. Genesis 22 told us that, that Abraham's offspring, his seed, would be a blessing to all the nations. And that this seed would come through Isaac who he received back miraculously after being willing to sacrifice him, right? And now this offspring, this seed has come in Christ. Furthermore, Elizabeth rejoices at the visit of the mother of my Lord. This is a profound confession of faith. We're probably inclined to maybe pass over it a little too glibly. In these first two chapters of Luke, the Lord is invoked 27 times. Overwhelmingly, this is in reference to Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament. The temple of the Lord, 
the law of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. You get the point. But here, in one other time when the angels appear to the shepherds, the baby Jesus is called the Lord. It's pretty profound. In 2.11, the angels will say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Elizabeth is the model Israelite, the first to respond to the Baptist's cry, and she is the first one to hail Jesus as my Lord. That's the first thing to note here. But note the second key point of her prophecy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth has proclaimed Mary to be blessed. And she explains explicitly why she is blessed. Because of her faith. There's this unique status of the baby in her womb. But that's not attributed to Mary being a special person or having something different about her character. It is clearly on the basis of faith. Mary's relation to Jesus is unique. He's the fruit of her womb. But she's not blessed due to her uniqueness. She's blessed by what she has in common with all of us, believers in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God does not want us to revere Mary as an elevated, sinless, or any way different from us person. Rather, she's to be emulated as a model by us for how we should believe in God's promises and that they are all fulfilled in Christ. It is ironic that this passage has been used for the opposite effect in the history of the church. Taking our focus off of faith and putting it onto Mary as an object of prayer and reverence. But this is... Sort of the way it is with man and with human religion, right? We, we oppose the weakness, the humility of faith. We oppose the ordinary. We're drawn to the extraordinary. Show me a saint. Show me uh, someone, you know, laboring on the streets in a mission field. We're drawn to saints and miracles. We think faith is a weak thing. But here the word, it was the word spoken by the angel. Elizabeth calls it the word of the Lord. So what Gabriel said was the Lord's word. Remember, this is what he said to Zechariah. I come from the Lord. I bring you his message. God's word delivered by prophets, preachers, angels, messengers. Even by Elizabeth here is God's word. And what are we to do with it? Mary believed that it would be fulfilled. God will do what he says. And note finally that Elizabeth uses the title Lord in the more traditional sense at the end of her saying. Elizabeth's inspired prophecy calls both Yahweh, the Father Lord, and Jesus, the baby Lord. Both the one who has spoken and the one in your womb are my Lord. Now Luke doesn't come out like John does in his gospel and say the eternal word of God became flesh. Luke doesn't give us a theological pronouncement. But think of what he's doing In this simple blessing, this inspired blessing pronounced by Elizabeth. He's portraying clearly for us the two natures of the one Jesus Christ. He is the fruit of Mary's womb. And he is her Lord. He is equated with the Lord of the Bible, the Lord, the lawgiver, the Lord, the redeemer, the Lord who saves. Jesus is man and God, baby and Lord. And the spirit reveals this truth powerfully through the witness of Elizabeth. Faith contains this profound paradox that she humbles herself before an unborn child. You're my Lord. 
It's a profound reversal of expectations that will carry on into the Magnificat, right? This isn't the way it's supposed to happen. God's grace is surprising in how it comes to us. The miracle of the incarnation is on display. The Lord who has promised to save has come in the form not of a a mighty warrior, but in the form of an unborn baby. And so one point of application is that we should reflect and mark this miracle of the incarnation. We confessed it in our Apostles' Creed, right? Conceived of the Virgin Mary. And it's on display for us in God's Word. The child in her womb is called Holy. Why did he have to take on flesh that his holiness might save us from our sins? So, let's not pass over too quickly Elizabeth, but Mary clearly is center stage here. And let's think about the faith of Mary. She's praised here, praised here, right, by Elizabeth for believing that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. Mary is described as faithful by Elizabeth, but Luke proceeds to record for us her song, which gives voice to her faith. Very much in the style of Hebrew poetry, it's reminiscent of the song of Hannah. You'll recall when Hannah is blessed with a child in the temple, 1 Samuel chapter 2, her son, the prophet Samuel. And Hebrew poetry works by having these parallel lines, each one often agreeing with and confirming and expanding the line that comes before us, sometimes explaining itself by way of contrast. And Mary's song expresses her faith in the God who saves. So not only is Mary a believer, but what does her belief do? The first thing it does is it trusts in God for salvation. Trust for her salvation. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's song has come down to us as the Magnificat. That's the first Latin word in that Latin translation. And it magnifies the Lord. Faith praises God. Faith attributes glory to God for what he has done. It doesn't lay a claim upon him, but it thanks him for what it has received. And saving faith doesn't just praise God for his attributes, for his holiness, for his might, for his power, for his wisdom, for his justice. Yes, it does those things. But more importantly, saving faith is a personal trust in the Lord. I need this God to save me, and he has done so. It gives glory to him for his work of salvation. It is personal trust when Mary says, my Savior. And what did Mary need to be saved from? Obviously, she'll turn later to Israel's redemption and deliverance, right? The whole nation of Israel was oppressed by a foreign, foreign uh, army. But she was also mindful of the Lord's mercy to her, her humble station, her weakness, her sinfulness. And she would... Be mindful of those things if she was a faithful Israelite. She confesses the joy of her salvation is receiving a a gift, a work which is entirely out of its own grasp. God who has promised to do the impossible, to make something from nothing in her, is going to save her in a similar work of creation. God stands ready to save you, brothers and sisters, by doing what is impossible. God is your Savior. The other crucial component of Mary's faith is humility. It frames the song. She says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
And then as she goes from the personal to the universal, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Faith comes to God in humility. Faith looks to God in acknowledgement of what it lacks, what it needs. Our profession of faith that the members of our church have taken in joining this church says, Do you openly accept God's covenant promise which has been signified and sealed to you in your baptism, do you confess that you despise and humble yourself before God because of your sins and that you seek your life not in yourself but only in Jesus Christ, your Savior? Mary saw and acknowledges her want, her need, her hunger. She reaches out to God who is able to fill the hungry with good things. Notice how her song contrasts those of humble estate with the proud and the mighty. God, the mighty one, is no respecter of persons. He doesn't reward those who have earned their way before him. Jesus in Luke 18, as we saw in our reading of the law today, right? The scribe comes in before him and says, I thank you, Lord. The scribe has used God's law to put himself in the righteous category. I thank you that I'm not like them. Bless me. I am a faithful servant. And Mary comes like the publican. Beating her breasts, have mercy on me, a sinner. She comes in humility, in need, in want. And faith acknowledges that when you come to God in pride and arrogance, He will cast you down. The strength of His arm scatters the proud. Those who think highly of themselves are unable to receive this blessing from God. If you don't know you're a sinner, if you don't confess your sins, you can't receive forgiveness for your sins from God. We come to him beating our breast. Mary is now using the language and looking back at God's power displayed in the Old Testament. In the defeat of Egypt and Pharaoh and all his armies. In the conquest of the Canaanites and all of Israel's enemies. God was merciful to Israel, long-suffering. Not only in their weakness, right? Paul says that God chose what was weak to show his strength. But also in their sinfulness, in their rebelliousness. He is so patient with them. He is as a faithful husband, as his wife, his bride, turns away again and again and again. He's long-suffering. Mary's song moves from her salvation to our salvation. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Those who exalt themselves will be cast down. Not because God is unwilling to show them mercy, but because they're unwilling to receive it. But the hungry he fills, the rich will be sent away empty. We'll see this pattern play out. This is like the sound of music. This is introducing a theme and a series of themes that are going to unfold throughout Luke's gospel. As the weak and the humble come to Jesus for filling, for healing, for salvation, and the proud, the rich, are sent away empty-handed. Now, one of the challenges, I think, for us to understand and read this song as we hear it is it might sound a little bit like a political program. Um, he's bringing down the mighty from their thrones, right? As though this is a, a call for a revolution. And there have been some uh, in recent decades who have um, viewed this through the lens of political liberation, um, uh, a communistic vision 
a preferential option for the poor, liberation theology, is a school of, of biblical teaching, or teaching, I should say, that arose in South America and was often co-opted by uh, communist uh, political actors. But it's very important for us to see that though Mary is speaking in the imagery, in the types, in the shadows of Old Testament Israel, of Israel and Egypt and Canaanites and Babylon and the oppression of, of enemies... Her weakness and her poverty are a personal statement. Mary is not calling here for a Marxist revolution. And how do we know this? Well, first of all, she's praising God for what he has done. God is the subject of all of these verbs. Mary is magnifying God for his power and sovereignty over all of human history. One commentator writes, Mary's song is not a revolutionary call to human action, but a celebration of God's action. Indeed, God's dramatic work is against those who would take power into their own hands. God is against the revolutionaries, as it were. God is in favor of those who receive his blessing. He has done great things. God humbles all nations, all kings, all rulers who stand in opposition to him, but he does so in his own time. Notice as well that the one paragon of faith who is named here in this psalm, Abraham, was fabulously wealthy. <laughs> he had a personal army. He waged war. He was a, a minor king in his own right. And yet he was faithful. He looked to the Lord to establish him in all of his blessings. For Mary as an Israelite who now understands and believes that Israel's promised Messiah is in her womb. She can only imagine what the saving action of God will look like. What Jesus is going to do. She knows that it's going to have world historical ramifications. And it will. Brothers and sisters, every knee will bow. The kingdoms of the earth, the powers and principalities that lift themselves up over and against God and his son will be cast down. Mary perhaps saw her son Jesus riding on a mighty horse at the head of armies coming into Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. Who knows what images she may have had. They would have been informed by, by David's military victories, by Moses' victories, by Joshua's. She could not know. She could not imagine that Christ the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from bondage by riding into her on a donkey. Enthroned, not on golden thrones or the power of arms, but in the palms of praise laid down before him. His royal throne would be a cross. This was beyond Mary's imagining. And so she is, she's praising now here the fact that God's plans for Israel are coming to fruition, literally inside of her. Notice as well that she is confessing here that the Lord is mighty and powerful and sovereign over all history. Brothers and sisters, at the close of 2023, the opening of 2024, you might wonder what the Lord has in store. But we know and we can trust, and faith trusts that God is sovereign over all things. He has the power as creator to make from nothing something. He speaks into existence not only the heavens and the earth, but the new heavens and the new earth. He makes from wretched sinners great saints through faith, through his spirit. And Christ is the king of heaven and earth, will and is the consummation of all human history. All those who reject him and magnify themselves over him will be toppled from their thrones. The proud of this age will be overturned. 
Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see this to be the case. Not only the power structures within Israel's, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, but in, in Acts, as the Gospel goes to the ends of the earth, even to Rome, where Paul, in prison, in chains, is it advancing mightily the work of God's kingdom on earth. Luke, want, Luke wants us to know that God, who is at work in Mary's womb, who has accomplished the impossible, who is at work in the incarnation, is still at work today in his spirit in the church. Lifting up the downcast, forgiving, healing, and converting sinners. Mary's song concludes where it began. With a statement of her faith, her in her own words, that what was spoken by the Lord will be fulfilled. Notice she comes back to God's covenant promises. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Abraham will be prominent as well in Zechariah's song. The word that she believes, it's the same promise spoken to Abraham. The seed, Abraham's offspring, will be a blessing to all nations. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's faith has come to fruition in Mary's offspring and the blessed fruit of her womb. And the blessing of Mary is a blessing for all of us. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you that you gather a church. And we thank you for this picture of faith at the outset of your gospel that shows us that Christ, our Lord Jesus, is come in the flesh to save us from our sins to show God's mercy to those who humble themselves before him. Lord, as we turn to you in faith this day, we pray that you will heal our broken hearts. We pray that you will comfort us and forgive us our sins. We pray that you will give us peace in the knowledge that you are working through all of human history to bring all things under the feet of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great King of kings, and Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.